For those of us who, uh, well, for all of us, right? For those of us who are living in 2024, which would be all of us, um, the prophetic book uh, called the Bible, right, which God wrote, the prophetic book which God wrote called the Bible, I would suggest to you is the single most important book in the entire world. And uh, you know, this year, we're inviting everyone to read it together uh, so that as a church, we can read through the entire Bible uh, over the course of uh, 2024. Um, That such a book even exists, which can uh, accurately speak to us concerning the end of our age in which we are living, before the end of the age comes to pass, is among mankind's greatest treasures. What would you give to be able to know what's going to happen in the future? You know, uh, if you just bring it down, I mean, uh, to uh, an everyday common thing, what would you do if you knew that a certain stock was going to double tomorrow kind of thing? You know, well, that's nothing compared to knowing what's going to happen to us after this life, which at best goes for 100, 105, 10 years, and all of eternity waits on the other side. What a treasure it is to have uh, the scriptures. And I want to suggest that it's the source of our hope. And uh, it's pretty important for us um, to be able to grab hold of this in in such a way that that hope becomes living. The Bible says when we're born again, we're born again unto a living hope that that hope, that reality of what's in our future has an effect on us and changes us and alters the way we think and act and so on. And so I want to suggest that the Bible really is our source of hope and uh, because we're living in an otherwise unstable, uncertain, kind of broken world. And so we've been for several weeks now um, trying to ask God to reveal to us what he wants us uh, to understand from what he's written in his word and asking him to reveal it to us. So, And I've been trying to show that uh, in almost all the epistles that Paul writes, he always talks about faith, hope, and love. And he talks about faith and love and then talks about hope separately in some of his epistles, as we saw. And so this morning, I just wanted to uh, just start with Ephesians chapter 1 and uh, verse 17 and 18. Uh, Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus, okay? And in verse 17, he prays, he says, I'm praying that God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So Paul's praying for the church. He's saying, I'm praying that God will help people to understand the truth about Jesus and so forth. And then he goes on and he says this, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. The eyes of your hearts. Now, would you agree with me if I said that, um, you know, it's one thing to know something in your head and it's another thing to know something in your heart. Wouldn't you agree with that? I mean, you know, we can know some things in our head that we don't really have, it hasn't really got down into our hearts yet and doesn't affect us. And Paul is praying that this church would get to know Christ not just in their heads, but in their hearts, right? He's saying, I'm praying that, You know, the Holy Spirit would open up the eyes of people's hearts so that they could really see and understand with their heart three things, Paul says. There's three things that I want people to be able to see with their heart. 
hope, riches, and power. How much, well, let's read it. Uh, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So that you could know, not just with your head, a bunch of facts about the future and what scripture says, but with your heart, embrace this hope that God has put in the scriptures for us through his promises, and it would become a part of us from a heart level. That you might know the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance, greatly blessed, highly favored, and overflowing richness that we get as uh, we inherit when we become you know, sons and daughters of the living God. Paul says, oh, I wish you could see this, not just with your head, like a fact that you would check off, but from your heart, understand how rich you are. You know? How much hope you have, how rich you are. And then finally, he says, and how much power God has invested in us. Right? Our hope, riches, and power. So we've been focused uh, pretty much on hope and how important it is and how big a deal it is uh, in our lives. And so, um, you know, have, have, have we thought to the degree that we see this with our hearts? That we actually have, you know, four eyes, not just two eyes to see things, you know, but at a deeper level, the Holy Spirit awakens our hearts and enables us to see uh, in a way that we haven't uh, seen before. And so God tells us, right, he's revealed to us that uh, at at some point in the future, this world as we know it's going to end. There is a defined end to this age, uh, the Bible says, okay? And uh, it's all through the scriptures, and I thought I would just read a couple of places, but uh, when we think about the future and where we're going and what's going to happen to us, uh, I'm in Isaiah chapter 65, and I'm just reading a couple of verses here. God is talking. He says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. There is a day coming when there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. That's a question people sometimes ask. Will I remember everything from the past and all the bad and all that? Well, uh, you know, uh, God's telling it through Isaiah here. And then the next verse says, Be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem, be glad in my people. Uh, No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days, and so on and so forth. Begins to describe this future life that God uh, is preparing for us. It gives us something to look forward to. And if you put it in your heart so that you're actually, you know, knowing that, hey, that's part of my future, it changes the way we understand our present. Another passage, uh, you might be familiar with this, is uh, in Isaiah chapter 2, where again, uh, here's, let me read it, verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days, right, at the end of this era, this age, if you will, Um, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations are going to flow to it. There's a day coming, right, when all the nations are going to look to, well, again, I should just be quiet and read. Um, Look at this. Many peoples will come and say, come, 
Let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, or Israel, uh, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go the law and the word from the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, uh, neither shall they learn war anymore. There's coming a day. Now, this hasn't happened, right? In all of history, would you say, oh, well, that's past tense. No, I don't think that's happened yet, you know, but there is coming a day. Now, again, if we approach the scriptures literally and uh, we take it at face value, uh, we can look forward to a day where the Lord is going to reign and, you know, things are going to be very different and very much uh, uh, better than they are now. And that's ours. And can we see that with our heart's eyes? Or is that just, you know, well, yeah, well, I'll figure it out when it happens. So in the New Testament... Uh, when we go to the New Testament, you remember uh, in Matthew chapter 24 where Jesus talks about what's going to happen in the future and especially the last seven years of this era, Matthew chapter 24, the disciples asked Jesus, what's going to be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? He links them together. The, the return of Jesus and the end of the age are part and parcel of the same experience. And uh, when we think about that, uh, we realize how Jesus answered and, and so forth. And I want to suggest to you that um, uh, the real uh, end point of prophecy is a person. If you say, well, where's all this going? What's the end point? The end point is a person. It's Jesus, right? And uh, again, let me, I'm back in Ephesians now in the New Testament. And in Ephesians uh, chapter 1 and verse 9 and 10, um, Paul is, you know, writing to these people about what God has done and how he's lavished his grace upon us and so forth. And then he says this in verse 9. He says, uh, in, uh, I'm, I'm praying I'm, I'm, that God has given us, right, all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. God's got a purpose to this life. God's got a will about how we all fit in and so forth. And Paul is asking that, you know, or is explaining to the people that God has revealed this mystery according to the purpose that he set forth in Jesus, in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time. God has a plan for the fullness of time. Now that phrase, fullness of time, you know, uh, when Jesus came at Christmas time, uh, the Bible says it was the fullness of time when Jesus came the first time. Well, there's a second fullness of time. When the time is just right, when God orchestrates all the different pieces together and so forth, the Lord's going to come back. And um, he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And here's the plan. And here's the mystery. To unite all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus. What's God's plan? God's plan is the same thing that we've been praying for since we learned how to pray. You know, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Can you imagine God bringing what's in heaven down to earth through the person of Jesus in order that 
uh, what's being done in heaven would be the way people live out their lives on earth. It's what we pray for. And uh, again, furthermore, in Ephesians, um, in Ephesians chapter 2, um, let me just read. I, I, I believe that what Paul is saying is that when that day comes, one of the things that's going to happen is that the nation of Israel and the Gentile church of Jesus Christ are going to become one. It's a very interesting passage of Scripture, verse 14 of chapter 2. For he himself, talking about Jesus, is our peace. We all understand that, right? He's our personal peace. And everybody talks about, you know, peace in the Middle East. Well, there is a day coming when there will be peace in the Middle East, but um, it won't be until Jesus is the source of that peace. And so go on and read this. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, in Jesus' flesh on the cross, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, you Gentiles, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. There is coming a day when God's people. And so uh, when you read about the last seven years that we've been focused on, that um, in Daniel, uh, God decreed these last seven years. And um, when we read about those and we uh, begin to uh, put the pieces together, we begin to realize there's an awful lot of things uh, that are in our future that we can know and look forward to and that change our hearts. Uh, at the very end of the Bible, the very last chapter of the Bible, um, Jesus uh, speaks and he says, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense bringing my reward, bringing my compensation with me um, to repay everyone for what he's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I'm the first and the last, uh, and so on. And so Jesus is coming, and when he comes, he will reward uh, those of us uh, who have invested our lives on his behalf. It's kind of exciting uh, to think about. And again, if it gets out of your head and down into your heart, it begins to change kind of the way we think and the way then that we act. So one of the rewards, one of the recompenses that I believe Jesus is bringing uh, is called the rapture. And it's the promise, the biblical promise, that God will remove all of his followers out of the world before the judgment of God, or what the Bible calls the day of the Lord, commences. And uh, it's, it's a pretty neat concept to think about again. And really, the reason is because why? Because God took everything that's wrong with us, all of our sinfulness, everything that offends him, everything we've said and thought and done that he is offended by, he's a holy, holy, holy God, and uh, put it on Jesus and let him pay the penalty, the, uh, take the wrath that we all deserve. And so... God says, you will never have to face the anger of God. 
You will never face the wrath of God. You will not, you'll be taken off the earth, right? Uh, the classic passages in Thessalonians uh, where, we've seen, uh, where we've seen that every chapter in Thessalonians talks about uh, the second coming. And so one of those great rewards is um, the rapture of the church. Taken off the earth, meet the Lord in the air. Um, and most everyone who takes the Bible literally, uh, you know, is with us that far. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 1 in verse 10 uh, talks about us and describes us like this. Uh, we're waiting for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. First um, Thessalonians 5 and verse 9, same thing, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the rapture of the church, the taking away of the church off the earth before the judgment of God comes against everything that's evil and uh, everything that's wrong. So there are four different views um, about the timing of the rapture. When does it happen in relationship to those seven years? Okay? And I just wanted to just quickly review them and then uh, maybe answer the question, so what? You know, why are you putting this stuff to me? You know, kind of thing. So the first, uh, really the most popular um, view is that the rapture will happen before the seven year, the last seven years that God um, lays out in Daniel. Before that ever begins, the rapture will happen and the church will be out of here. So the idea here is that the church would not face anything that Jesus or Daniel or John in Revelation, you know, is telling us is going to happen during that seven years because the church would be out of here, you know, and it, we have nothing to do with that. And, uh, and, and, and it's called the pre-tribulation um, uh, rapture, pre-tribulation rapture. So we'll be out of here before the last seven years begin. Now, um, people who embrace this call the whole seven years the tribulation. Now, there is no uh, biblical warrant for calling the whole seven years the tribulation. I mean, the Bible never calls it that, remember? Jesus calls the first half of the seven years uh, the beginning of birth pangs, and then he calls the second half great tribulation, right? So yeah, it's a time of tribulation, but nowhere is it labeled that way. But those who embrace that pre, and it is probably the most popular uh, among uh, the Christian church, and uh, that will be raptured pre-tribulation, um, which means before the seven-year period, and then after seven years, Jesus will come back. And uh, that means that we won't be, uh, as Christians, as a church, associated uh, with any of the trouble that Satan causes, that the Antichrist brings, will all be raptured before that, and... Um, and therefore, uh, we won't have the anxiety and the turmoil and so forth. Now, I hope these people are right. I mean, I really hope that's the right view, right? I mean, I have friends, pastor friends, and that's their view, and uh, they embrace it and so forth, and we have lively discussions. I really hope that they're right. I can see why this is the most popular um, view, right? I really do hope they're right. But is it biblical? Can anybody show me a verse of scripture, just even one verse that flatly comes out and says that we'll all be out of here before any of these problems start? 
And to ask the question, you know, why is Jesus telling his disciples what they're going to face when they ask if we're all going to be out of here? Here's the problem with this view. Um, If you embrace that view, and I was taught that view when I was younger, and I've spent quite a bit of time trying to ferret out of Scripture what I think the truth is. But um, the problem with that view is, well, you know, if I'm out of here anyway, then I don't really care about what God says about the future. I mean, it doesn't affect me. I'm going to just be with Jesus in heaven and all this stuff's going to be going down on earth and it's not going to affect me. So I don't really, you know what's going to happen? If that's not the right thing, I'm not going to be prepared. And Jesus talks about that, about this apostasy falling away, uh, you know, of the church and so on. And so um, is it biblical? And again, I'm unaware of a single text in the Bible that flat out comes and says that. As far as I know, this position is really based on conjecture. And, uh, and it wasn't always the position of the church. To go back to the early, generally speaking, if you want to study theology, the closer, the further you go back to the apostles and to Jesus, uh, the more accurate you get. And in the beginning, um, this was not the position of the church. This didn't come till much later. And uh, we could talk about how it came and all of that. Okay. Pre-tribulation rapture. Second position, mid-tribulation rapture. That's the idea that the church will be raptured in the middle of the seven years, mid-tribulation. And the idea behind the mid-tribulation is that the church is here for the first three and a half years, and then it's raptured, and these folks, for the most part, believe that the tribulation that Jesus talks about that starts right in the middle of that seven-year period is really the judgment of God. But it's very clear, it seems to me, from Matthew chapter 24 that Jesus actually goes right back to Daniel and compares what he's saying to Daniel. And we saw how Revelation parallels, you know, uh, what Jesus says. And so John says the same thing, that the great tribulation is tribulation caused by the Antichrist, Satan's minion, you know, who becomes this world leader and demands the worship of himself right in the middle of that uh, seven-year period. So, and then uh, the third view um, is, of course, the post-tribulation view. Uh, And those folks think that God's wrath starts at the beginning of the seven years, that it's not Satan's wrath and Satan's doing, but that it's God's, and that the church stays here through the whole time, and at the very end is raptured. I'm not quite sure uh, why or where that all comes from. But then the final view, the fourth view, Um, is called the pre-wrath, the pre-wrath, right before God's wrath, the pre-wrath rapture, that the church would be taken out of the world right before uh, God's wrath comes uh, upon the earth. And uh, that asserts that the church is raptured right before the judgment of God is unleashed. In fact, Jesus says it's the rapture of the church, the taking off of the church that cuts short, remember, Matthew chapter 24, cuts short the persecution of the Antichrist or the great tribulation. And uh, again, um, you know, it really helps if you can understand the first part of uh, these seven years is Satan's wrath and the very last part is God's wrath or the day of the Lord. It's not all the same. Obviously, uh, the object of wrath is going to be very different between Satan and God. 
uh, Satan's wrath would be directed at the elect, right? And Jesus says it's the rapture that cuts short this great tribulation against the elect. If you uh, are interested in this, Revelation 12, 13, and 14, uh, if you just read that and, and just spend some time thinking about it, and there's so many things that, just ask yourself, like, can you envision what those uh, chapters in Revelation tell us is going to happen, uh, given the technology that we have today? And uh, could there be a one-world dictator who could keep track of everybody and know, you know, and just everybody has to wear a watch, you know, that is looking at you and counting your steps and knows where you're going and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And Alexa's in your house listening to every conversation. And, you know, put all of that on top of Revelation 12, 13, and 14. It'll blow your mind. You see, you know, a couple of years ago, you're like, oh, how could that ever happen? Now, take that technology, put it on to Revelation, and ask yourself if you can envision, in a rather short period of time, all of that becoming true. Now, you know, why does this matter? What's the big deal? I'm so glad you asked, okay? Uh, what if pre-tribulation is wrong? What if we're not all out of here before all the things that Jesus and John and Daniel tell us are going to happen? Well, we'll be totally unprepared. We'll be spiritually unprepared. Um, the stuff that Jesus described, you know, uh, you want to be prepared. If that's what's going to happen, uh, you, you don't want to be a part of the apostasy and so forth. What if pre-tribulation is a false hope? A false hope. Wouldn't it be just like Satan, who snuck into the garden of Eden and said to Adam and Eve, you know, did God really say you can't eat from any of these trees? Well, no, that's not what God said. But all of a sudden, they created this doubt, and then Satan says, oh, God knows, you know, you eat from that tree, you'll be just like God, you decide right and wrong for yourself. And it was a nightmare. What if Satan snuck in, like the Thessalonian church says, remember Paul says people were all confused because somebody had sent a note and pretended that it was coming from Paul, but it wasn't really, misinformation. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, you know, listen, don't be deceived. Don't be fooled. And that's why I think it's so important that the Bible become our uh, guideline and that we really want to be able to... Uh, figure out what scripture says in order that we might embrace a, a position. And so why did this matter so much? Well, if we put our hope in a false hope, uh, we're going to set ourselves up for a huge disappointment. If the whole church were to think, you know, well, I'm out of here, none of this applies to me, so I'm simply going to ignore all that the Bible says about the future. Because somebody told me along the way that the church is all out of here uh, before that all happens and so on. Well, you might remember what Mark said, or what Jesus said in Mark's gospel. In uh, Mark chapter 7, uh, Jesus was a little upset with the people that were hanging around him, and he said this. He said, you folks have a fine way of setting aside the word of God for the sake of your traditions. Remember that? These, these were uh, people, and they were telling their parents, hey, sorry, I can't help you. I gave all my money to God. You know, um, and here's, here's what, and I'm in verse 9 and, or 8 and 9. Um, you leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. Um, 
Then he says this, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your traditions. And I would challenge you to kind of do a little exercise and just draw a line on a piece of paper and on one side put, you know, uh, beliefs and on the other side put traditions. And see if you can draw a line between what you think are, I like to call them non-negotiable absolutes. I would die for these 10 things or whatever. And then how much of what I really believe is based on tradition and man's ideas, like I said, you know, I would love somebody to defend from Scripture the pre-tribulation rapture. I don't think you can find a passage of Scripture. There's inferences. You can have an idea and then go to Scripture and try to find a verse that fits, you know, and use it that way. But I don't think you can actually find a place that actually comes out and says, you know, what a lot of people really believe. And I'm like, well, where did that come from? And that really is a great question. Where did it come from? Is it coming from the Word of God? Is the Word of God really our plumb line? Um, and again, uh, Jesus said the same thing, I think, in Matthew chapter 24. Uh, the disciples asked what's going to be the sign, what's going to be the end of the age. The end of the age, the word age is ion or era. Uh, the beginning of a new era, the end of this era, and the beginning of a new era, Lord willing, next week I'd like to uh, just uh, invite you to think about the millennium and what the Bible calls the millennium in Revelation chapter 20, if you kind of want to read ahead. Uh, but what's the next era that uh, after we leave this era and so forth. But I bet you remember the story uh, when Jesus told the story about weeds, right? I'm, you might remember this, and if you don't, when the spring comes, you'll remember it. But uh, Jesus tells a story about weeds, and it's a pretty easy to understand, you know. Uh, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his uh, field, ah, but while he was sleeping and his men were sleeping, the enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat, and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds also appeared, and the servants of the master uh, of the house came and said to him, Master, uh, didn't you sow good seed in your field? How is it then that we have weeds? And uh, he said to them, oh, an enemy has done this. And so the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather the weeds? Uh, but he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them, let both grow together until the harvest. At the harvest, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay, so a little story easy to understand. So the disciples, a little bit later in verse 36, uh, the disciples come to us, uh, come to Jesus, and they say, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. So Jesus answered them. He said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, Jesus. The field is the world, and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the son of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age. When is the end of the age? The end of the age has been decreed by God through Daniel to be these last, at the end of these last seven years, right? There's a decreed end to the time, and it's being referred to here. And the reapers are the angels, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, 
So it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. There's a harvest coming. A harvest is just a separation of the good stuff from the bad, right? And there will be a harvest at the end of time, Jesus taught in that, uh, where the unrighteous will be separated from the righteous, and uh, the kingdom of God will be separated from the kingdom of this world. Uh, The rapture of the church will be followed by the day of the Lord, the judgment of the Lord, and then the millennial kingdom, and ultimately heaven and hell. At the end of the age, this will begin to happen. And so even the Great Commission, right, which we all understand, go into all the world, make disciples, and behold, I will be with you, Jesus promised, till when? The end of the age. I will be with you until the end of the age. So if we could figure out when the end of the age is, then we would know, right, uh, where uh, the rapture would occur. And if the church uh, is gone at the very beginning of this seven-year period, it would mean that the harvest would have to be at the beginning because certainly the rapture is part of the harvest of separating uh, the wheat from the chaff and so forth. And so uh, even as Jesus was talking to his disciples in Matthew chapter 24, you might remember that um, Jesus says to them about, you know, the first half, there's going to be wars and rumors of war. There's going to be pestilence. There's going to be this, that, and the other thing. And uh, nation will rise against nation, you know, and there'll be famines and earthquakes. And all of these things are the beginning of birth pangs. Um, and he said, but then he said, uh, you'll hear about wars and rumors of war. See that you're not alarmed, for this must all take place. But the end is not yet. The end is not yet. It's not in that first half, you know, that... Jesus is talking about there. And, uh, and the word, you know, for coming, Jesus coming, the, is the word parousia. Parousia means coming in Greek. And um, it's used 24 times in the New Testament, uh, not all about the coming of Jesus, but when we talk about the coming of Jesus, that's the word that's used. It's always singular. It's never plural. So there's only one second coming. There's not two. There's not like, well, Jesus comes at the beginning of this tribulation period, you know, and then seven years later, he comes back again. No, the the coming of Jesus incorporates a number of events. Just like if we were to say, hey, the first coming of Jesus, we're not just talking about his birth. We're talking about, hey, the first coming of Jesus, you know, there was the cross and there was the resurrection and there was the ascension and there were the miracles and there were, there were all these different events associated with the first coming of Jesus. And so there are a number of events associated with the return or the second coming of Jesus, but there's only one coming. And so the rapture is a part of the second coming. It's not something separate that we can separate out from the second coming. And again, uh, if we ask the question, you know, why, why are you belaboring this whole thing? Uh, Let me just uh, answer you. Um, If we embrace this pre-wrath view, and we understand that we're here for most of the seven-year period, well, we're going to be preparing for that. We're going to be asking ourselves the question, how are we going to handle this? If this were to happen in my lifetime, you know, uh, how would we handle this? Am I a part of a church? 
with people that I trust enough that I, we could get together and help each other survive some of the things that we read that are coming upon the world from Satan. You know, or am I out there in left field by myself just doing my own thing and it's just me and God and uh, am I avoiding what God says about, hey, you gotta be a part of a group of people you know, who would be there for each other in significant ways, whether we're living before this all happens or if we're living in the middle of uh, this whole thing happening. Uh, would I have the support, you know? Um, can I uh, make a decision now that there would never be a single circumstance? Young people, this would be a great, you know, commitment. Can you ever envision a circumstance where you would deny Jesus as your Savior and Lord? There's a little saying, you know, uh, that I think is appropriate. It, it says, uh, you can't put your seatbelt on when the accident is happening. You have to do it beforehand, right? And you can't wait for somebody to put a gun to your head and uh, try to force you to deny Jesus to decide what you're going to do. But now is the time to say, you know, he's my Lord, he's my Savior, he's my uh, means to, you know, because there are a number of scriptures, and we don't have time to do this, but there's a number of scriptures uh, that talk about, you know, even right here in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus uh, says that... Um, uh, they're going to deliver you up and put you to death and you'll be hated by all nations and so forth. And uh, because of lawlessness, a lot of people will fall away. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. What does that mean? The one who endures to the end of this period of time, you know, will be saved and so on. Uh, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony and then the end will come. Well, if the church isn't here, who's going to be proclaiming to the whole world the gospel? And I know there are people talk about the two witnesses and, and so on. Uh, but, all right, one last uh, passage of scripture. Matthew chapter 24, uh, verse 37, at the end of talking about all of this, Jesus says this. He says, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will be the coming of the son of man. Two people will be in the field. One will be taken. One will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. One will be left and so forth. Therefore, stay awake, be alert. You know, uh, understand the circumstances, current events, and so on. And uh, I just wanted to uh, close with this last passage of Scripture, uh, way back in Genesis uh, chapter 6, because uh, this is where we read about the flood that Jesus is talking about. And uh, here's, I'm sorry, chapter 7, here's what it says. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and the rain fell upon the earth 40 days, 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of the three sons entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and so on and so forth. On the very same day that the judgment of God began, the rescue of Noah happened the very same day. Could it be 
that the day of the Lord and the rapture of the church occur on the same day, at the same time. That the Lord takes his people off the earth and the judgment of the Lord begins to fall. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful, Father, that you're a God who always tells the truth, that we can trust your word. And Father, I pray that you would help us to have this uh, passion to understand the truth and that if there are traditions that have sort of slipped over into our truth that are challenged by your word, that uh, we wouldn't be afraid to embrace uh, more truth, that all of us, in fact, would expect to uh, see our understanding of you grow. That wherever we're at in our understanding, uh, there's always room to understand you better. And uh, that's what you desire for us. And so when it comes to uh, some of these kinds of questions, Father, I pray that your word would be our guide. And that we would challenge each other, challenge ourselves, that you would challenge us with traditions that uh, would maybe be false hopes. And that would lead us into uh, a real mess uh, if we were to uh, hold on to them. And so... Thank you for the Thessalonian church and for all that you revealed to them about the truth. Uh, For Jesus' sake, amen.